It's Friday, and that means it's time for the Weekly News Recap, where we break down some of the biggest local and state stories of the week, including these. Some Chicago City Council committees rarely meet despite benefiting from six-figure annual budgets. One example is the Education Committee. Since the start of the term in May 2019, the committee has met seven times. Chicago's mayor wants to add the city's voice to a federal corruption case involving former alderman Danny Solis. Philanthropist and businessman Willie Wilson is once again running for mayor. Wilson recently garnered attention by handing out more than a million dollars in gas to residents at the pump. You get me uh, free of charge. Uh, I owe no one any money. Lots of news to jump into, and I can't do it alone. Our panelists today are Aaron Hergady, City Hall reporter at The Daily Line. Aaron, welcome. Great to be here. Also with us is David Grising, president of the Better Government Association. Hi, David. Hi, Natalie. Chicago businessman... Willie Wilson formally announced his run for mayor this week after hinting at it for almost a month. Aaron, what can you tell us about his decision to jump into the race? So, yeah, it's kind of hard to believe that happened on on Monday. It seems so long ago, but um, he had been kind of signaling that he was going to make an announcement um, for a few weeks, and this will be his third time um, running for mayor. He ran unsuccessfully in 2015 and 2019. He didn't uh, make it to the runoffs either of those years, but um, he's now the second person to officially announce that they're running for mayor in 2023, as uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot has not yet officially said that she's going to run again, even though she's been, you know, beefing up her uh, finance and campaign teams. Um, But yeah, he he made that announcement on Monday, and he's already pumped $5 million of his own money um, into his campaign, which is it's that's a huge amount of money. Um, and as we all know, he, you know, recently gave away more than a million dollars in free gas at local gas stations. Um, so I am um, interested to see if he does that um, again or, or does any other sort of um, kind of giveaway like that, because it's, you know, largely thought that that kind of helped push Mayor Lightfoot uh, to come up with their own plan to offer um, gas relief and CTA relief to um, Chicago residents, even though she says um, she wasn't influenced by by Wilson. Um, I think, you know, his he doesn't have a hugely harsh rhetoric for Lightfoot at this point, aside from saying that her his support of her um, in 2019 was a mistake. Um, so I am interested to see what kind of uh, policy proposals he he rolls out, I guess, in the coming months. Um, Wilson, like you said, so, well, he supported Lori Lightfoot's run for mayor in 2019, but he's clashed with the mayor several times. David, what are some of those criticisms? Well, he, uh, like many people, he's concerned about the tone of the mayor um, in, in her administration. He um, He's all about economic opportunity, and um, uh, he, I, I think he says he could do more to help uh, lift people up than the mayor has done. Um, it'll be interesting to see uh, those two, as well as others that come into the race, join on that issue because that has been uh, really the signature focus, aside from crime fighting, of Mayor Lightfoot. Her Invest Southwest uh, program is is what she's, I think, staking a lot of her hopes for re-election on. And so to see those two um, do, uh, go to go at it uh, on that issue. 
But we shouldn't frame it too much, I think, as Wilson versus Lightfoot, because clearly we're going to see many other candidates right. step forward, um, and we're just sort of waiting now. And this is the way the Lightfoot so far is is dismissing uh, Willie Wilson by saying, hey, there will be plenty of others. I, um, she sort of shrugged off his announcement this week. But what do we know about his agenda and what he would advocate for as Mayor Aaron? So a couple things he said on Monday was that he doesn't agree that, you know, police officers need to be vaccinated. Um, so that that's one kind of huge uh, way that he, you know, stands differently than, than Mayor Lightfoot. Um, he also kind of took the time to uh, critique the mayor for, I guess, you know, shutting down churches during the pandemic. He said people should have been able to worship during the pandemic. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. Those were two things that, that really stuck out to me um, related to, you know, recent uh, issues. David, what about you? Well, the it's interesting to see that on the issue related to vaccinations and, and pandemic fighting, the, the mayor generally has gotten pretty good um, uh, reviews on that. And the police uh, situation seems to have worked itself out. And so I don't know how much traction he's going to get there. He is popular in the religious community, partly because of defending the religious freedom aspect. And he has worked hard um, uh, to curry favor there. Um, and and that that's sort of out of the playbook that goes back many years here in Chicago politics. Um, uh, Mayor Lightfoot has not had quite as um, big a support there. So uh, in the first round in the last election, he got the most black votes across the city. He got more black votes than Mayor Lightfoot, uh, candidate like then candidate Lightfoot did. And so uh, there is support for him out there. But again, let's see who else enters the race. Yeah. Um, David, bring us up to speed to another story. Um, Chicago Alderman Danny Solis's secret deal with the feds were revealed in new court documents this week. Yeah, this was a, a, a quite something. Um, what really has caught attention is that he essentially has a promise that he's going to walk uh, with a dismissed charge and, in fact, will even be able to retain his uh, city pension, uh, assuming that he testifies truthfully uh, in the two landmark cases that he uh, has helped bring by wearing a wire uh, going back to 2018. Uh, he wore a wire in conversations with Alderman Ed Burke, who has been indicted and is claimed not to be not guilty and is defending his case, um, which is taking forever to come to trial. And he also uh, wore a wire in conversations with uh, former House Speaker Mike Madigan, who also has said that he's innocent. Um, uh, the city is so uh, disdainful of this that um, uh, in a, an appearance this week in court, uh, it was announced that the city plans to file a victim income uh, impact statement. This is usually done at the end of a trial when somebody's been found guilty and the victims come up and talk about how it affected their lives and it then affects sentencing. In this case, there won't be a sentence to be uh, to be rendered. And so the question is, well, okay, city, you say you're victimized, but this person's being let go with basically no criminal record. How does this work? And so there are some legal machinations that have to happen before that comes to pass. And have you ever seen anything like this before? I'm not aware of a city ever filing um, a victim impact statement. 
Uh, Mayor Lightfoot's belief is that the city was victimized by Alderman Solis's corruption and that the single charge against him is so narrow and, uh, again, will be dismissed that it doesn't uh, give really the public uh, the opportunity to really reckon with uh, the corruption that he was part of. There's been so much focus on Ed Burke's corruption and Mike Madigan's corruption uh, that the litany of uh, what Solis did with regard to uh, prostit- prostitution, getting free use of Oprah's former farm in Indiana, getting Viagra. It was <laughs> a quite reason. a list of things. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think the mayor wants to, uh, first of all, burnish her law and order credentials, and secondly, um, hold him up to um, uh, scrutiny and so that as a warning to others who might be tempted to also engage in corruption. And let's turn to another alderman. The Better Government Association released an investigation this week about 27th Ward Alderman Walter Burnett and him changing his stance on affordable housing units in a development in his ward. David, tell us about that piece. Yes, uh, Alderman Burnett uh, has been a, a fair housing advocate and has earned a reputation for that. But our investigation found that uh, in a development called Atrium Village, which is in the Old Town area nearby where Cabrini Green used to be, uh, that he changed his stance uh, after, uh, first of all, being lobbied by a good friend of his, Mays Jackson, to which the developer paid $400,000 for lobbying services. And as part of that, uh, Jackson um, held a fundraiser that was sponsored by the developer, Ani Group. And Annie Group also made uh, donations to a nonprofit run by uh, Alderman Burnett's wife. Uh, and um, uh, the timing is interesting because after all of this, uh, Alderman Burnett then changed his stance and has been supportive of this development, even though it's not meeting, by some reckoning, fair housing requirements. As it happens, it technically is meeting the requirements, but but 70% of the affordable housing units are in a mid-rise that has already existed in this development, and the brand-new high-rises are getting far fewer affordable housing units. And so the fair housing advocates are saying this is not the way the system is supposed to work, and they're being quite critical of Alderman Burnett for being taken in by this plan. And the way this this is the city's affordable requirements ordinance that says developers who receive city assistance have to put affordable housing units on site or pay a fee or put them elsewhere. And so in this case, they weren't going into the shiny new thing. Exactly. They're going into a, a mid-rise, older mid-rise building. It also that raises the issue of aldermanic prerogative or aldermanic privilege because uh, when Alderman Burnett was criticized for this, he said, hey, to a fellow alderman, other person these days, uh, get out of the, you know, this, this is my ward. I have a right to control what happens here. Get out of my business, basically. And this is something that all, that Mayor Lightfoot and other reformers have been talking about is this power that all their people have over their wards uh, needs to be uh, reduced and constrained. This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, it's our weekly news recap. Our panel today includes Aaron Hergerty of The Daily Line and David Grising of the Better Government Association. Aaron, staying on the topic of older people, you were part of a big report on attendance in city council. Tell us about your major findings. Yeah, so this was a project uh, with us at The Daily Line, WBZ, and Cranes, and we looked at um, aldermanic attendance at committee meetings from 2019 or May 2019 through 
December 2021. And these committee meetings, um, this is where aldermen discuss, you know, new legislation, new fees, new fines. They have the opportunity to, um, you know, find out their own information from city staff on on new proposals and perhaps, you know, tweak measures that they think need changing. Um, and so we gathered all this data on attendance um, and we found that uh, aldermanic attendance is actually up since the last time um, WBZ and uh, the Daily Line looked at this. Uh, the previous uh, average attendance rate was 64%. It's now up to about 81%. Um, and while that is a B minus, and some people might be happy with that, um, that still means that aldermen are not showing up on average to about 20% of the meetings they are supposed to show up to, the job they're paid to do. Um, and I think it's also important to note that there was a wide variation in, in attendance rankings. And so um, Alderman uh, Leslie Harrison of the Fifth Ward, she had the highest rate at 93%. Um, but then at the bottom, you have um, Alderman George Cardenas of the 12th Ward, who attended, I think it's like 54, 55% of the meetings that he was supposed to go to. Um, and overall, we found that the freshman aldermen, the aldermen in their first term, are attending more meetings than their veteran colleagues, which is interesting, right? When you have Alderman Ed Burke, who's thought, you know, this powerful dean of the city council, um, attending 55, 56% of the meetings that he's he's supposed to show up to. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's important because this is where your alderman, your elected local official gets to um, influence things that affect Chicagoans um, every day. And this um, analysis was during, partly during the pandemic. And some older people say that virtual meetings were part of improving their attendance, helping them balance their committee obligations with city council meetings. Do you think virtual city council meetings are here to stay? Or, and what kind of impact did you find virtual was having on this analysis? Yeah, so the impact is, I think it's it's so interesting because aldermen kind of have this double duty, right? They have to, they have ward business to attend to. They have to fill potholes, replace trash, trash cans, um, you know, answer questions that constituents have. Um, and it's it's hard to do that if that's happening at the same time as, you know, a, a committee meeting at City Hall. So when those meetings are virtual, um, it's a lot easier for aldermen to be in their ward, you know, sign on to Zoom and participate in a meeting. Um, and that's, you know, what they said, too. Um, you know, we saw <laughs> aldermen attend meetings from you know, a, a treadmill or while walking their dog, yes. um, which is, I mean, great multitasking for sure. Um, but I haven't heard anything about the committee meetings going back to strictly in person. Um, they're still all virtual, even though this, the full city council is meeting in person. So I think there's definitely room to continue holding these meetings um, virtually. There is an accountability aspect, though, to holding them virtually because um, uh, when they're not present at the meeting, uh, it it makes it difficult for people to get a hold of them and have impact on what they what their decisions are. Lawmakers approved a new state budget this weekend after a marathon session in Springfield. Aaron, break down some of the highlights. Yeah, so it it seems like you know this legislative session ended uh, much earlier than it than it usually does, um, and I 
personally am thankful I didn't have to stay up all night to watch it and that there are state house reporters who do. Um, but yeah, so this $46 billion budget, um, one interesting th- thing that it includes is a $1.8 billion in direct tax relief to Illinois residents, which sounds great, right? But um, I think it's also important to note that this is uh, an election year. And so um, this is set to include, you know, direct checks of $50 to individuals making under uh, $200,000 per year and up to $100 per per kid, um, up to three kids, and uh, suspension of the state's, uh, I think it's 1% grocery tax um, and a six-month pause on uh, a gas tax increase that was supposed to um, I think happened July 1st. Um, the spending plan also includes a $1 billion for Illinois' rainy day fund, which is something that's pretty unprecedented in um, Illinois to be putting that much money away. Um, and a couple hundred million dollars for different uh, public safety initiatives. Um, and the you know budget is set to take, take place uh, July 1st. How big of a deal is that rainy day fund? Governor Pritzker praised it, um, calling it, quote, historic. Um, I Yeah, no, I agree with that sentiment. I mean, Illinois has been dinged for so long for not being able to sustain itself um, for longer than I think it's like minutes or hours or something. So About 15 seconds. 15 seconds. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is, this is a, a, a leap forward, I would say. David, anti-crime initiatives aimed at reducing carjackings, retail theft, and expressway shootings were also a part of this budget deal. Fill us in on that. Right. There's a frustration about the inability to cut down on the number of carjackings. And uh, for the time being, because nobody knows how to do that very effectively, it's really about victims and and making certain victims are made whole if their car is stolen uh, and, say, towed or runs through a red light or something. Um, There's a new uh, law that uh, says that that you as the owner of that car are no longer responsible as of the point at which it's it's stolen from you. there was not uh, as much success in terms of solving the problem overall, and so they instead they've done what government often does is form a committee to study the problem and see uh, what can be done about it. The organized retail theft, um, they're both trying to reduce the activity by dis- by creating a disincentive. They're trying to crack down on the resale of stolen merchandise, and, and they've increased penalties for people who are caught uh, and, and participating in these kind of gang attacks on retail establishments. This has gotten a lot of attention, especially as this type of activity has spread to previously secure areas like the North Michigan Avenue Retail District, which has uh, gotten a lot of attention just because of its high profile. Right, because there's been reporting that has shown a lot of things aren't up. It's just the attention because it is a, a, a high profile district. Um, and unsurprisingly, Republican lawmakers say that Democrats are being soft on on crime. What's your take on? I mean, you did say that people study this, <laughs> right? Um, when they they aren't sure, but um, you know, we are coming up in an election. Well, I don't think that this will solve the problem that the Republicans are trying to create for the Democrats by especially attacking the big uh, crime reform bill that was passed. Uh, last year 
during the legislative session, and specifically the bail reform bill, which hasn't even taken effect yet, the no-cash bail reform. And so the Republicans are really just seizing on this as a rhetorical point because they're aware of how upset people are about the increase in crime, and especially the increase in violent crime. Um, carjacking is a violent crime, and the way that the gang attacks, the, the group attacks on retail establishments, also there's some violence involved there. Um, neither party seems to have answers, but the, there's, a, there's an effort made both on the part of the Democrats to inoculate themselves with the bills that were passed this spring, but the, the Republicans are, are saying and will continue to say that that's not nearly enough, and it doesn't get at the heart of the problem which is the, the violent crime that we're seeing still uh, run virtually unabated. Shifting back to money, Chicago is launching one of the nation's, nation's largest guaranteed basic income programs. After a six-month delay, residents can now apply for a city lottery used to choose 5,000 participants. Aaron, how will this program work, and how much money will they get? Yeah, so this was um, included in the mayor's uh, budget proposal for this year and, and like you said passed several months ago um but it's it was just announced this week that that applications will be accepted april 25th through may 13th and um also as you said this this could give uh 5000 low income chicago households um 500 monthly checks for 12 months um and i think it's you know, this this uh, to qualify for this program, applicants are going to need to be um, 18 years old. They're going to have to have experienced some sort of economic hardship related to COVID-19 and have a household income of no more than 250 percent of the federal poverty level. So that would be um, five fifty seven thousand five hundred seventy five for a household of three. Um, this is all funded with dollars from the American Rescue Plan. Um, and so I am interested to see, you know, after this program is implemented and and people start, you know, receiving these checks and, and using them to, um, you know, meet whatever needs they have, um, I'm interested to see next year um, how this continues, if it does, since it's funded through, you know, these one-time funds with, from the rescue plan. Advocates have said that folks need cash. Let them spend money how they need it and how they want it. Will there be any sort of measures to figure out if this plan, this pilot was successful? Um, yeah, I, I kind of delved pretty deep into um, the nuances of this. And I, there is some sort of review to see how successful this is. Um, and, and I think that review body or I don't know who who's going to be on this, but they will, I think, make recommendations going forward. Um, so, so yeah, but, you know, this is $500 that people can spend as, as they choose. Yesterday, Reset had on Brandy Kanazi, Commissioner of the Department of Family and Support Services, and she had this to say in response to the critique that it's taken too long to roll out the program. When you look at other cities, it's taken 12 to 18 months to stand this up. We've taken six months, and I know when someone is in, you know, financial and dire straits, every day is too long. But really, we're working as fast as we can to make sure that beginning in May, that money is in the hands of the people who need them. David, what are your thoughts? Well, I'd, I'd, she's got a good point that this is a relatively quick turnaround once the city 
did decide to move forward on this, and that's the question is why did it take so long. What is interesting is the scale of the program. $31.5 million altogether is the largest test of this idea in the nation. And this is be, was a national issue. This is what Andrew Yang ran for president on, the idea of giving families $1,000. And and so he, um, you know, he had the view that this was, first of all, as you pointed out, Natalie, money in people's pockets, and also they're going to be a beneficial economic impact of putting that kind of money out into the, the pockets of people who actually spend it, because a lot of times tax rebates, et cetera, go to people who put it in the bank, and it doesn't really do that much economic good. And so the follow-up study uh, will be important in determining if this is good policy or just sort of a one-off that maybe shouldn't be repeated. Especially, like you said, it's the largest of its kind in the nation. Uh, Let's turn now to another story about the possible Chicago casino. Three contenders for Chicago casino hosted town halls last week, and that includes the Hard Rock, Bally's, and Rivers. Aaron, it seems residents aren't completely sold on their plans and presentations. What are some of the issues people have? Yeah, I I tuned it. I didn't cover these specifically or um, watch all of these meetings, but I I tuned into most of them, and it seems like Residents are concerned, one, about traffic. This is, you know, going to be a destination. And while you can argue that all Chicagoans should just take public transit to this casino if they'd like to go, you know, there could be people coming in from the suburbs, out of state, and people will inevitably drive. So people are concerned about the traffic. They're worried about the the noise that could come with such a large kind of entertainment destination. Um, and I think another very valid concern is is residents are worried that this will increase problematic gambling um, in their communities, um, and and so yeah, I don't I don't know that I heard any <laughs> any resident uh, stand up and applaud these proposals. I think right now we're we're hearing just a lot of pushback um, from from people who could be living near um, these proposed casinos. David, it's not clear that there's enough votes to approve the casino's location. It's relatively unprecedented for a city council to to approve this kind of development over an alderperson's objections. But could that happen? It possibly could happen. Uh, $200 million in projected revenue, which is earmarked for uh, police and fire pension funds, which are badly underfunded, is at stake here. Uh, a lot of people say those number that number is 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 inflated, but is something close to that possibly? And so there will be a lot of pressure uh, from other wards to make this happen. But uh, we talked about aldermanic privilege earlier when an alder person stands up and says, "I don't want this in my ward." And so far, um, they've gotten um, neutral to negative responses from the three alder people in question. Uh, there is that question that will hang out there, but there's going to be a lot of pressure. And this will tell us a little bit about Mayor Lightfoot's influence on city council because she really wants this to happen, and she's putting a lot of pressure on council uh, to move it forward. Um, It'll be interesting, of course, to see which of the three. There's only one local contender here, Neil Bloom and Rust Street Gaming. Neil Bloom, the the mega wealthy uh, real estate developer, and Rust Street Gaming, Uh, they're the ones that are believed to have the inside track um, and it'll it'll be quite interesting to see ultimately what Mayor Lightfoot develops sometime in the next few weeks. This is Reset. I'm Natalie Moore in for Sasha Ann Simons. We're going behind the headlines with today's weekly news recap. Our panel includes Aaron Hergerty of The Daily Line and David Grising of the Better Government Association. Let's talk CPD. 
A biannual report assessing the Chicago Police Department's reform efforts came out this week. The Independent Monitor found uh, the CPD has made, quote, significant progress, end quote. But she also found several areas that need improvement. David, what were your takeaways? Well, yeah, they have made significant progress uh, now complying with 70 percent of the requirements compared to 52 percent in the last uh, semi-annual um, review of progress uh, toward this huge uh, um, uh, police consent decree. Uh, let's not forget, though, that because they have been behind, the deadline for compliance has been extended to now a total of eight years. Um, it's not won't be surprising if um, we see it go as it happened in Los Angeles to 12 full years before the city possibly could come into compliance. This is not easy to transform the culture of a police department that has had such problems. Maggie Hickey, the uh, uh, who is reviewing the the compliance, she pointed out a couple of specific problems. That first of all, this is not just a checklist that there has to be cultural transformation within the department, specifically the area, the area of community policing, where the Chicago Police Department can't even agree on what to call its community policing program. It actually has two of them, one, one the Chicago Alternative Policing Strategy, the other the Neighborhood P- Policy Initiative, and Maggie Hickey is saying that's emblematic of the fact that there's not agreement. The other quite interesting observation she made was that this year's landmark police uh, strategy that David Brown, the superintendent, introduced of 1.5 million positive interactions uh, as part of the effort to kind of change the community's acceptance of police in their midst. Uh, she's saying this is actually sort of dangerous um, program that uh, just because a police officer thinks they're going to make a positive interaction with a community member uh, doesn't mean that community member will see an approaching cop as something that is welcome. And given the history of stop-and-frisk policing that has been shown to be uh, biased against people of color, it's not surprising that in many communities a cop approaching somebody, even if if it's with good intent, might be problematic. And Maggie Hickey has said this is more... um, uh, this is something that needs careful consideration and possibly reevaluation. Finally, she's talked about training. Training is under, uh, it needs to be done at a number of different levels. And lastly, there's some good news for oversight in the city. This week, the Ethics and Government Oversight Committee unanimously endorsed Deborah Woodsburg for the next Inspector General of the City of Chicago. The post has been vacant since Joe Ferguson, who we heard earlier in the show, stepped down last fall. Aaron, quickly, what do we know about her? 30 seconds. Yeah, so Deborah Witzberg, she previously served in the IG's office as the Deputy Inspector General for Public Safety, but she stepped down when she announced that she was going to run for this top watchdog position. Um, you know, she her confirmation sailed through this ethics committee. I, I expect that it will also pretty much sail through the city council, and, and she, you know, made it clear that she has a background in police reform, and um, that is something that I think we will see her take with her moving forward. I wish we could keep going. So many things that we didn't get to, but that's Aaron Hegarty, City Hall reporter at The Daily Line, and David Grising, president and CEO of the Better Government Association. Thanks to you both. Happy Thank Friday. You. Want more context on the top issues of the day? Find the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.